0: You very much for having me this morning. Um, I've really been praying that the Lord will lay something on my heart that is relevant and that speaks right to the depth of your spirit today. I think because I'm here, and you already know because Andrew introduced me like that, I am a um, clinical psychologist, but that's not what I'm here for today. I think that. I don't wanna try and prove the validity of psychology or speak about um, psychology and Christianity. That's not my heart for today. Mm -hmm. I really want to share a, a personal account of how my husband and myself and my children and even my mom and dad who are here today had to bring faith and science together in the midst of something that was incredibly painful for us and so my heart for how what mental wellness looks like was birthed out of tragedy and suffering, not out of a textbook. And I think that's that is the position that I want to take with you today. This was the point I think in our lives in which the Lord really solidified our faith. And for those of you who don't know our story and who don't know my husband and myself, um, our firstborn son passed away in 2013. And I think that that was definitely the moment for me where my husband and I had to choose. We're either going to hold onto our faith with everything in us or we are going to step away from our faith and question and allow that to dominate how we dealt with, with what we were facing. And it wasn't easy. That's why when I say that I'm going to speak about Habakkuk today, I want you to know that as a family, we have done that wrestling And embracing and that it's something that we speak about because it's something that we lived through. So when I was preparing my um, sermon for this morning I I thought to myself I'm one believer sharing with a group of believers the only difference is that I am a self-proclaimed and very proud neuroscience nerd. That's the only difference between us today. And so when you see my nerdiness in neuroscience seep into what I'm saying today, it's because all truth is God's truth, right? And so if I'm giving you a fact about what we see in neuroscience, it's because the Lord created this incredible body, an incredible brain. And so everything that we see as being proven true is true only because it's truth in Jesus Christ. And that's why I do want to share some truth with you. Um, around neuroscience and of course I can't speak without bringing the brain in because that would be totally incongruent (laughs) with who I am. (laughs) So I really pray that this morning I will communicate directly to your heart and your spirit and that there will be a truth that seeps into the depths of the situations that you may be facing currently. The title of what I want to say today is Habakkuk's race, ready, set And go I know that the analogy of a race is used often so I'm going to ask you to bear with me but I really pray that the Lord would give me the right analogy to work with with you because brain fact number one of probably a hundred the brain and what you hear from me today if I give you a picture or an analogy a metaphor you are going to remember that significantly better than what you're going to remember all my words and all my phrases And that is actually why Jesus spoke in metaphors because when he spoke in metaphors he created stories in people's minds and he created pictures and that is what brought them through their hardship. So as I speak I'm going to ask you to allow this picture to take shape and expression in your own mind and then it's a picture that you can hold hold on to in the weeks to come. So by means of an introduction, uh, I mean that was technically already an introduction, my second introduction (laughs) is that i want to just briefly mention the concept of mental health and how there's a difference between mental health (laughs) and mental illness versus normal human experience and i think that's something that i just briefly want to touch on because it's confusing and feelings are overwhelming feelings are big and they take up a lot of space in our hearts and minds and so i want to start there obviously it's not the focus of my message today but it is something that i think will help you to contextualize what I'm going to say. So when we speak about normal human emotion and experience versus mental illness or a, a psychiatric disorder, the word actually refers frequently to things like anxiety, despondency, my spirit was anguished within me. If you look at lamentations, to lament, is to cry like a guttural, deep cry. Psalms, if you've ever read through the Psalms, it's quite expressive. David says, smash the teeth of my enemies. And he doesn't hold back in terms of what he's expressing. You can see that he is desperate in how he speaks. And those are emotions that human beings experience. Because you and I are human, you are at times going to feel anxious you are at times going to feel disappointed and despondent and overwhelmed. And I don't want us to become alarmed when we feel those things. There's a whole section of your brain that is specifically structured to process emotion. So emotion is not the enemy. I think it's what we end up doing with emotion that can become the enemy in our souls and in our lives. Neuroscience, has exploded over the last few decades and because of that there is a plethora of research available that shows us just what happens in the brain when we feel anxious or overwhelmed or even angry but what it also shows us I think I have a cool slide um, it will be the probably the first one it is the Um, that's not the first slide I think that's like the tenth slide (laughs) (laughs) but it's good we can there we go (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah so when we look at neuroimaging and when we look at things like fMRI we look at neurotypography which means what's happening in the brain basically and neurochemistry we can start seeing that when there is an actual psychiatric disorder mental health illness that we end up diagnosing there are actually very clear changes that take place in the brain these changes can even be visible in other brain-based disorders like dementia or even alzheimer's (coughs) if you look on the screen you're going to see on your left hand side that is an a an image Of a brain we call a normal brain okay I don't know if any of us have completely normal brains (laughs) (laughs) but for the sake of research let's call exhibit a normal brain but then you're gonna see on the right hand side there is the brain of a person who suffers from generalized anxiety disorder Mm. and can you see there are very clear differences we have done we um, more like everybody else has done fMRI scans for decades and so we have a huge body of research that shows us that when you present with say for example generalized anxiety disorder most brains within that cluster of symptoms look like the one on the right there is overactivity in a structure called the basal ganglia which is the center one of the centers for anxiety and there is too little activity In the area of the brain that is supposed to help you to think logically and rationally and to see things in perspective and so when we look at a brain like that we can see that at times normal human emotion and normal human experience becomes something that we do need to treat and in those cases I advocate for the full army of professionals I do advocate for medication when needed I do advocate for psychotherapy, obviously, otherwise I would be quite hypocritical. (coughs) And for whatever other um, professions can assist us, social work, occupational therapy, because then on the continuum of normal human experience through to a psychiatric disorder, I don't like the word, but that's what we use um, currently, in that continuum we have seen that the brain now needs assistance, okay? not every time you feel anxious is it reflective of generalized anxiety disorder not each moment of feeling despondent or overwhelmed or depressed is a disorder some of it is simply us living in tough times in a tough world in tough situations and having to face those and then get through them so I wanna just show you the continuum. I, I had other slides but I don't want to waste too much time on my neuro stuff. Um, that's the last slide. I'm getting on. That's okay. Okay, can you yeah. Can you just go back one for me? So what I've said there is even though there are mental health disorders that we will diagnose and we will treat It has to be diagnosed by a professional. It can't just be, oh, you're anxious or, oh, you're feeling depressed. Maybe you have depression. I think we throw that around a little bit too often because the feeling is so big that we think it must be reflective of a disorder and it isn't always. So medication is an essential component of some treatment processes, but definitely not all of them. We don't need medication for every situation or every thing that we feel. And when we use medication at the right time, the right medication at the right time for the right diagnosis, then we see a very good outcome because the medication either reduces the overactivity in certain parts of the brain or it increases the activity in the other parts of the brain. But that, if we go to the continuum, that is only a very small, if you look on this side, That is only at the very end of the continuum. On this side of the continuum, we might have clinical depression, bipolar, generalized anxiety disorder. But if you think about the continuum of normal human experience, all of these things come before we get to a point of diagnosis. Feeling anxious, feeling depressed, as I said, despondent, disappointed, grieving, most of us in this room, I'm quite sure, have had an experience of grief and it is excruciating. Sometimes in grief, you do end up needing medication, but grief is one of those human things that we all go through, loss, difficulty with normality. And once we overhear, we know that that person can no longer function. And then we include what we need to include in order to get that brain working as best it can. But regardless of where you fall on the continuum, I want to tell you that this yellow block here, holistic healing and wholeness for mental, spiritual and emotional wellness, this yellow block is actually our answer. Because whether you're on this side of the continuum, having a tough day, or whether you are on that side of the continuum and you have been diagnosed and you're using medication, our wholeness and our healing can only come when we are spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically focused. Otherwise, we take medication when needed, and medication doesn't get to the heart issues. It helps us to function and it rectifies brain activity, but it doesn't get to the depths of what we need to deal with, often spiritually and emotionally. Trauma the same. And so let's be aware of that continuum and, and figure out where you are on the continuum, but make sure that you are rooted in your spiritual practices, in emotional health and in physical health, regardless of where you are. Thank you for putting up that slide. There's always that age-old question of what comes first. Is it the chicken or the egg? My husband told me this morning he's very sure it was the chicken because, I mean, Jesus created, uh, God, created animals, (laughs) not eggs. Um, (laughs) So the question is always, is it thinking that changes our brain structure or is it the brain structure that changes our thinking? That is such a big question that somebody could literally write a PhD on it. So I'm not going to speak on that now. But what I do want to say is that the, there's good news. It's both. <coughs> and because it's both, it means that we are able to harness our thinking, our emotions, and <coughs> our behavior in ways that increase the ability of the brain to actually heal and rewire. Yeah. Here, here. That's called neuroplasticity. I'm sure you've all heard it because it's a word that people use frequently. But isn't it amazing that that neuroplasticity is actually a gift? It's a gift that the Lord has given us because He, brace yourself for the pun, is the (laughs) mastermind of the brain. He created the brain. He created it to rewire. He created it for neuroplasticity, which means we are not the product of what is happening in our brain. We have the power and the mind of Christ And many other resources to change what is happening in our brains. So with that in mind we know that 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 asks us to take every thought captive. There's so many portions of scripture that speak to the mind and emotion. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 16 also says to us that we have the mind of Christ. And if, for example, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, CBT, has worked for you in the past, I want to tell you that it's only worked because that portion of therapy must have been based on God's truth. You must have been taking thoughts captive, whether you were doing it in a psychotherapy setting or whether you were doing it in another setting, you were taking thoughts captive. And so the truth of your healing is based in the truth of the Lord. can't get away from, from that truth so i think the other very important thing that comes from this is that brain function and brain activity does not equal your identity you are not your brain we don't walk around with fleshy brains on display we walk around as whole people the brain being one component of who we are the brain being something that the lord has created but it's not our identity And I think it's tempting sometimes to allow what's happening in our brains to become our identity or to become our justification. And actually, we have to be intentional in taking a few steps away from our brains at times and taking those thoughts captive and asking ourselves is this thought going to lead me towards what is important and valuable and God honoring in my life? Or is it going to take me away? From what is important and god honoring in my life because every thought and your action based on that thought takes you towards something yeah. and it's either going to be towards something destructive or it's going to be towards something healing and wholesome yeah. let's go with ready set go i want to use this analogy <coughs> before i run out of time I did warn you that when I start speaking about neuroscience, I get very excited um, and I have to stick to my notes. I want to use Habakkuk's race because Habakkuk, if you read the book of Habakkuk, is poignant in showing us the depth of what somebody can feel, their anger and their questioning and what is happening here, Lord. And we see how he sets his course through what he feels and what he sees. We're going to start with ready. If you look at the slide, Habakkuk's race getting ready. Mm. I am not an athlete. I exercise purely for my mental health (laughs) and so that I can enjoy eating. (laughs) I am married to an athlete though and I have a daughter who's a sprinter and when you go and watch races, Those athletes spend a lot of time readying themselves for the race. Not only on the day of the race, there's a build up to the race, but if you look at how they stretch their muscles and they drink water, they're not sitting idly by on the side of the track drinking Coke and I don't know, eating chips. They have got a very specific focus in mind and they're readying themselves for what they know lies ahead and in the same way I think that we need to ready ourselves for our races we need to train for what's ahead we need to know that we are preparing carefully and focusing our minds we also have to listen to the race official because if you start before that command of go you get disqualified we have to follow the regulations of the race And we need to know that while we are running, it probably is not going to feel fun. Mm -hmm. I put that in there because I don't feel like it's fun (laughs) when I have to run. We have to know that it's not necessarily fun. There's an exertion. There's an effort. There is a feeling at times of being tired. But there's also a finishing line. And when you are running, you are looking at the finishing line. You're not looking at the person next to you Mm -hmm. because then you slow down. That's what The athletes always tell each other, don't look at the person behind you because you will then slow down your own race. Or you might run into another person's lane. We have to ready ourselves for the fact, this is not good news necessarily, that life is hard. I remember after we lost our son, we had a couple come and speak at 3CI, which is our home church. And they testified, they were missionaries, their daughter was um, had been diagnosed with cancer, cancer and their son had fallen during a rock climbing expedition and he'd become a quadriplegic oh, and this man gave a moving testimony and afterwards Rory and Mel said to Jan and myself they want to meet you. They know what you've just been through. And I was all excited, like, "Oh, maybe we're going to get a word of knowledge or like an exhortation for getting through the season. And we went to meet them. And I remember the, the pastor looked at me and he said, Wendy, Jan, I'm, I'm sorry to hear of your tragedy. <coughs> and then he said to me, I want to say to you, life is painful. And I was like, uh... Is that all you've got for me right now? Can you give me a follow-up phrase that's not as difficult to hear? And in the moment, I didn't like hearing that. It took me a few years to process it. But I'm so grateful that he said that to me in my moment of greatest pain. Because life is painful. And the essence of the gospel is surely supposed to intersect with the fact that life is painful. Surely that's why we believe what we believe. It's because when life is is painful, then are we not sustained by our faith and by the Lord and by what we believe. In John 16 verse 33, I know you all know this verse, it says, You will have tribulation and distress and suffering, but be courageous and confident and undaunted. Be filled with joy because I have overcome the world. It doesn't say stop being distressed. (coughs) It doesn't tell you not to be distressed because remember, distress is a a natural human emotion. It says alongside your distress, next to your distress, Mm -hmm. in your distress, be courageous and confident Mm -hmm. and undaunted. In Psalm 102, David, well, they think it's David, they're not 100% sure, calls himself a melancholic pelican. (laughs) (laughs) We even have humor in times of suffering. He says, I am like a melancholic pelican. And he says this because he feels distressed. And he's honest about that. A melancholic melancholic pelican i've never seen i'm not sure if anyone will actually see one if you do please take a photo because that would be a really awesome getty image melancholic pelican but we do feel like that at times we do feel melancholic we do feel overwhelmed we are given countless examples of characters in the bible for whom there were big emotions and for some there was even an existential faith crisis who am i why am i here what are you doing lord we see it throughout the word yet we still sometimes find ourselves quite indignant and surprised and even angered when we face difficulty and suffering so i'm asking let's ready ourselves within our theology for times when things are tough and when you do feel discouraged despondent anxious overwhelmed Part of our theology is that although we know that we might be in the proverbial wilderness at times, the Lord's word is far more saturated with his promises than what it is peppered with warnings. The promises of God in his word far outweigh the be careful, this might happen, etc. If you Google that, you get a hundred different answers on, ho- on how many promises there are in the word. One author says 30,000 in comparison to five or 6,000 warnings or, or admonitions. And I want to rem- remind you, this verse I found last week, um, and it was very powerful and very helpful for me. It said 1 Corinthians, it is in 1 Corinthians 10:13. even though we experience times of testing which is normal for every human being God will be faithful to you he will screen and filter the severity the nature and the timing for every test or trial that you face so that you can bear it is that not a promise worth standing on when things are tough then set so now we've had our ready in our race and we've been training and the physios have been telling us what to do and then comes that moment where all the athletes take their position at the starting block it's funny how the atmosphere in any arena changes radically when the official says the word set everyone goes quiet there's an anticipation there's a focus There's an intent in the athlete's eyes. They don't hear the noise that surrounds them. All they are doing is focusing on the race ahead. They're going through the strategy. They're visualizing what they've practiced. They're calling to memory what they know to be helpful in their lives as athletes. So that when that command comes, go, they are able to go as effectively as possible. This is the point at which all the hours of that athlete's sacrificial preparation are actually tested. Mm. There's an intense focus, as I said. I love the moment where most of them don't look down at the starting blocks at what is right in front of them. They don't keep their their eyes pointed downwards. What they do is that they lift their heads so that their eyes are focused towards the race and towards the finishing line and they then make sure that they can hear the officials command. I wonder if we keep our heads bowed down looking at what is right in front of us our circumstances and our pain or whether or not we look up and fix our eyes on the official and on the finishing line. If we look at the account of Habakkuk as the analogy of the athlete We see in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, I do have it on the slide for you. We listen to Habakkuk saying, O Lord, how long will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? For destruction and violence are before me and strife continues, contention arises. In that moment he is looking at what's right in front of him, correct? (coughs) We also see that he is questioning and he's in distress but you know to grow our faith and to solidify our beliefs we will have to be tested. Mm. It is the testing of our faith that causes us to become grounded in it Mm. because even in research any good research that any scientist and there are many in this room from different disciplines Any good research has a hypothesis, they think this is what it is, then they test that hypothesis over and over and over and over again until they can prove a definitive conclusion. And that is what we are doing. Mm. When we are in difficulty and times of trial, we are testing the Lord's hypotheses over our lives Mm. so that we can prove them to be true. Science, faith overlapping we then see that Habakkuk's course is set when you move to chapter two we see that he was anguished and that he had overwhelming emotion totally flooding him we can see that his head is spinning and that he's questioning the Lord in the midst of his angst but he's not testing the Lord he is challenging the Lord but he's not testing there's a difference We can also see that although cognitively he's thinking, Habakkuk is expressing his distress and his doubt, he doesn't allow his emotion to determine his course. He expresses his emotion, he's honest and vulnerable about his emotion, but it's not the emotion that ends up directing what he does. He depends on what he knows of God to be true and on the Lord's character to determine his course, not his feelings. And we know, I know in my own life, if I had to follow every feeling and emotion that came up, it would follow me down a dark path. And I think society nowadays, everything is relative. So I'm allowed to be upset and angry and this and that because I'm allowed to have my feels. And you are allowed to have your feels. But again, what you do with those feels is something that is an intentional choice and needs to come into alignment with the Word of God. Mm -hmm. So this is what then Habakkuk says in in chapter 2. He says, Despite what I feel, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the tower, and I will keep watch to say what the Lord, or to see what the Lord will say to me, and what answer I will give as a spokesman when I am reproved. And then the Lord did answer me. Mm. Hallelujah. That's a verse in and of itself. Write the vision and engrave it plainly on clay tablets so that the one who reads it will run. Mm. So setting the course means we are going to be active. We are going to be running. Mm. We are not going to be standing still. We can stand still for a, a short period of time so that we can hear what the Lord says to us and then... We are going to have to run. Colossians 3 is another powerful piece of uh, scripture. For those of you that know Jan, it is his favorite piece of scripture. It is again showing us how to plot our course. What it says is seek the things that are above. Then set your mind on these things. Again, that's active. Both of those words are active. <laughs> Seeking and setting is an is a action that you have to take. Habitually focus your mind on these things. Habitually means over and over and over again. So some days we have to do the same, taking the thought captive a hundred times in one day. I, I did suffer from postpartum depression twice out of the four children that I had. I do have a proclivity, a tendency towards anxiety. So I'm not saying this from a perspective of not understanding what it feels to wake up at times and have to habitually focus my mind. I do get it, and it's not easy, but it is the course that we have to plot. Put to death the habitual things that are not God-glorifying. Again, active. Rid yourself of these. So the word actually tells us twice to put those things to death. To get them out of our lives and then put on the new spiritual self. Otherwise, we end up looking at the people next to you or behind us in the race. We look at other things like addiction or our cell phones or even the affirmation and attention of the people around us in order to make ourselves feel less anxious or less afflicted or maybe even good enough. But when we do that, we are going to end up being disqualified from the race because we might cause injury to ourselves or to somebody else. And so I think the word is clear on how we need to plot our course. I want to remind you again though, praise God that his promises do outweigh his warnings and that he's a redemptive, restorative God. He's a God of reconciliation. He's a God of healing. If you look at the names of God, which we are um, studying at the moment, Jan and I, the names of God, counselor, healer, deliverer, the one that will fight for us. And those are the things, Prince of Peace. Thank you, Rachel, Gracie. Those are the things that we hold on to then. Please also remember when you set your course, this is my last point on course, that. Because we know that all scientific truth is God's truth, we also know that your physical health and your sleeping patterns and your dietary habits and what you fill your mind with and whether you are compliant, you take your medication regularly and properly or not and whether you are speaking to a counsellor and whether or not you are rooted in your faith and in communicating with the Lord that is all part of the course it is wisdom to apply godly knowledge to what you are battling with so don't negate those things in your course make sure that alongside your faith and your um, commitment to hearing from the Lord you put wise things in place as you recover from what you are feeling which brings us to our last part of the race this is the point go Um, I, as I said, when I uh, watch my daughter um, race, or if I watch anyone else race, I get goosebumps every single time that, um, what do you call it, Yana? The starter gun. Yeah, the starter gun goes off. It's like there's this adrenaline and this electricity in the air as we now watch people racing. This is the pinnacle, right? The pinnacle of all the preparation. It's the focused attention of setting ourselves in the position that we need to be in in order to finish the race. And it's, again, a very intentional, active part of the race. We are not standing still. We are constantly (coughs) moving forward. And mental wellness is also about not standing still. It's about constantly moving forward. Consistently, effectively, and accurately. I know I'm not good with sugar, Neither are are any of our children. There are certain things that I know I should avoid. Otherwise, I get cranky. Very seldom, very seldom. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe once a year, maximum. (laughs) And so that is accuracy. That is taking science and applying it to your life. The other thing I want to remind you of is once you've set your course, and you know what you're going to be holding onto and standing on the truth of, when that starter gun goes and we are running that race, I want to remind you that the word is clear about the fact that we go through difficulty and trial and tribulation. (coughs) That is why it's a process whereby you walk, you don't stand still, you run, you don't sit down. Psalm 23 says, Walking through the shadow of the valley of death that's something many of you in this room especially over the last few years can relate to that there has been a shadow of death over your lives but that you have walked through it not just physical death but death of dreams hopes expectations the second part of this is that we don't get left in the valley To die there the Lord is so kind and redemptive that it is him that pulls us through that valley he doesn't leave us there but we do actually have to walk and not stand still not become stagnant not become passive not use our pain as our identity not using our pain as the justification For the decisions that we make Craig Rochelle says all our lofty and spiritual convictions seem to blur when we are looking through the cracked lens of a broken heart so let's remember that when our hearts are broken our lofty and spiritual convictions begin to blur and we don't see clearly We can't follow the emotion that comes from a broken heart. We have to follow the truth that we have set in our course and readied ourselves for when those moments of broken heartedness come. If you look at Habakkuk, the name Habakkuk is a metaphorical one. Remember, as I said, we use metaphors because the brain absorbs it better. His name is derived from the Hebrew word. Shavak, which means a wrestler it means one who ardently passionately embraces therefore it means that we both wrestle and embrace at exactly the same time it is a simultaneous wrestling embrace I've had to do that this week I'm sure you've had to do that this week wrestling and embracing at the very same time, which again, if you watch people who wrestle, takes effort and determination and perseverance. In chapter two and three with Habakkuk, we see his course plotted and we see how he went, how he looked at the word go. First he cried out, which we all can and do do then he asks the Lord big questions he wrestles as he asks these questions but then he says that he will wait and watch okay we have to wait we have to watch we have to hear he then listens to what God says to him he writes Because remember, your brain unfortunately is going to undermine you many times in your life. And your short term memory is going to disappoint you. Because we tend to remember the painful things that happened long ago, not so long ago. And we forget the things that we haven't focused on equally as much, if not more. And so when you write something down, it shows you how to anchor yourself when your emotions flood. And then lastly, he embraces with faith as he wrestles. Look at Habakkuk 3, 16 to 19. In the first part, 16, Habakkuk is saying, He trembled, He quivered, there was rottenness, there was a day of trouble and distress, people were, were against Him, people were going to invade and oppress. Very expressive what he feels and then he says an important word he says the word though though the fig tree does not blossom and there's no fruit on the vines though the product of the olive fails and the fields yield no food though the flock is cut off from the fold and there are no cattle in the stalls which is not a nice reality it doesn't sound great correct yet second keyword. word Yet, which means, but at the same time, nevertheless. At the same time, equal to wrestling and embracing at the same time. I will rejoice and I will exult in the victorious God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He is my personal bravery. He is my invincible army. He makes my feet like hinds' feet. And will make me to walk, not to stand still in terror, but to walk. And he will allow me to make spiritual progress upon my high places of trouble, suffering and responsibility. He didn't remove the trial. He didn't remove What Habakkuk was feeling what he said was yet although this is tough although this is hard although you feel overwhelmed and hopeless and confused he stood on the truth that the Lord would provide him with strength and bravery that he would fight for him and that while the Lord did that in Habakkuk's life Habakkuk said, I will not stand still in terror. I will not let my emotion determine my position. Instead, I'm going to walk and make spiritual progress even during my suffering, my trouble, and big responsibilities on my life. That is something I think that we can see as a promise to lay hold of because wrestling and embracing is an action of painful intimacy it is painful to wrestle and embrace as i said leading up to preparing for the sermon wrestling and embracing was something that i started applying to my life and feeling what it feels like and it's painful but it is also intimate We do not negate the pain. I'm not invalidating emotion. I'm not invalidating difficulty and trials and tribulations and diagnoses, not for one second. That's what my professional life is about. We are not negating the pain, but simultaneously we are not letting go of the intimacy. We hold onto the intimacy while we are healing from the pain. We hold on tightly until we see the breakthrough that we know the Lord has promised us. Because we readied ourselves, we set our course, and then when that official's gun went, we were positioned to run and not to stand still and not to allow our terror and our emotion to become our position. So, I want to, in closing, read Hebrews 12, verse 12, with you. When I read through my um, sermon notes with my husband, he um, gave me this verse as something that really gives us hope. And I want to read it to you, but I want to also read it over you. Hebrews 12, verse 12, in the ESV says, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees because at times you will have drooping hands and you will have weak knees. Make straight paths, set your course for your feet so that what is lame will not be put out of joint but will rather be healed because you've set your course strive for peace with everyone i.e. do not let your emotions determine your behavior yeah. and for the holiness without which no one will see the lord this, the um, expository sentence on that verse says that in poetic old testament language this verse 12 and 13 actually poetically exo- exhorts the readers to endurance in the race that is set before them isn't that incredible so I want to ask you to consider where you are in your own race (coughs) do you need to go back to the time of preparation and getting ready do you need to recalibrate your course by setting your mind on the word and the promises and the truth of God and applying wisdom and and knowledge to your situation Or do you need to amend your strategy for the race itself? Have you become weak and feeble? Have you trodden in somebody else's lane? Or have you looked to somebody else for what only the Lord can give you? Instead of fixing your eyes on Him and on the finish line. And lastly, can you find the courage in your suffering to wrestle and embrace Simultaneously. So what I'm going to ask, I know you're having, we're doing communion together today. And I want to ask that we take communion um, as a, a group in unity. But that you also take a few moments just to allow the Lord to speak to the places of your heart that are feeling downtrodden and feeble and weak and that you allow your eyes to be fixed on him and not on what's right in front of you.